Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jadikin. Desi, we're going to start by thanking our Patreon contributors, you can go over to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene for more content that we post there. Yeah. We have a $5 tier and a $10 tier, and you get access to tons of bonus content that you don't have access to over here. Yeah. So if you're interested, go over there. Uh, this week, we have some new patrons we're going to give a shout out to. We had Bissy, Emma, Mark, Detroit. Kelly, James, Soledad, Brian, Zenith, Sean, Sarah, Renee, Brittany, Toddy, and Kath. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. So we're back to see what the next 50 years of Danny Trejo's life ends up having in store. Uh, actually, I wanted to give an update to a question I had about the balloons in the mouth when he sold heroin in, in last episode, a listener wrote in to tell me that the balloons of heroin are kept in the mouth so you can swallow them easily if a cop comes around. Very smart. Uh, and I guess that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. I don't know why. I, I was like, what is he? Like French kiss them? Pass <laughs> them over? Uh, must be nice to be so naive like me. It's not. Um <laughs> As I mentioned last week, I'm going to give you a lot of stuff from his book in this episode, but you should go get it yourself and read it all in his exact words. I also heard he has an audiobook version that he reads, so oh. that might be interesting. It's called Trejo, My Life of Crime Redemption in Hollywood, is co-written with his friend, actor Donald Logue, and I found out that he met Donald in the early 90s when Donald was working as a janitor in one of the drug rehab facilities Danny was working in at the time. No shit. So that's how they met. So they've known each other a long time. And yeah. that was before Danny was a big, huge star. Like he had just started acting in movies. Right. Okay. So where we left off last week... Trejo has been released from prison. He has on his Please Don't Rain On Me suit, $200, and a bus ticket to the Valley. He is determined to be on the straight and narrow when he returns home. And this is 1969, 1969, right? August. So, of course, the minute he's back home, the first thing he runs into is a hot girl reeking of marijuana who has a red secondal stuck to her face, the same color of the panties she's wearing because Danny got an eyeful of those as well. She recognizes him from the neighborhood and invites him to party. He says he wanted to suck that secondal right off her face, <laughs> but instead he calls his old sober friend, Frank Russo. He calls him from a payphone telling him there's a hot girl trying to get me to party with her. Frank leaves him on the phone, instructing him to chat with his wife while Frank heads over to pick up Danny. 
Now, Danny is like, I don't know what would have happened if Frank didn't come get me or didn't pick up the phone at that moment, but it's very likely I could have fallen back off the wagon. Like, cause yeah. that's how tempting this chick was. <laughs> uh, his, his resistance is not airtight yet. Rachel, he's uh, still on the, you know, he's a noob. Yeah. So his halfway house plans had fallen through. So Danny gets dropped off at his dad and his stepmom's house or his mom. He just calls her mom. His dad allows him to stay, but basically refuses to make on to eye contact with him like when he's there, uh, he is anti-tattoo. And as we all heard last episode, Danny is covered with a huge chest tattoo in addition to others. So he thinks maybe that's part of it, but it's also his dad is just uh, disappointed in what he's done with his life. Now the tension is thick in the house, not just between Danny and his dad, but between his mom and dad as well. He mentioned like one night sitting with his dad all tatted up in front of uh, the TV, just silently sitting there watching TV, not speaking a word to each other. The The air is thick with rage. And he recalls his stepmom offering them cookies and milk. And he sort of laughed at the idea of them sitting there steeped in toxic masculinity, dipping cookies and milk <laughs> as they watch TV. <laughs> I just love that image. So he jumps at the chance to leave the house when Frank calls him about going to a meeting. Frank also gets him a job painting cars, and Frank starts a program with the help of a federal judge called RIF, which stands for Recovery and Freedom. This is an alternative to juvie for kids who are in trouble. The judge had seen basically like a lot of juvenile cases, and he said that 75% of these cases were drug-related, and he felt like they needed an alternative to deal with that um, rather than just being behind bars. like And he, they needed to be treated. So a pretty progressive judge for back then, I would say. Still to this day. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> uh, definitely. We all, I think, agree that that's something that needs to be treated and it's not going to get better uh, in prison. No. So they bring Danny in to speak as someone who had been through it all. And that goes very well. They think Danny is cool as shit um, because of his um, background. He's not just some goody two-shoes telling them. He's lived the life. He keeps busy working, going to meetings, and giving back to his community through Riff. He also starts working for food banks. Like He's really doing whatever he can to stay sober while also honoring the promise he made to God in solitary about helping people. His uncle Gilbert gets released from Folsom during this time, and he rolls up to Danny's house in a sleek black Lincoln Continental dressed to the nines, took one look at Danny like in his sort of workman paint shop clothes. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing? He tells Danny to come back and work for him, that it'll be just like old times. Uh, Before he leaves the house, he leaves two quarter ounces of heroin on the table and a thousand dollars. But Danny didn't want to go back to old times. He wasn't an idiot. However, he did take the money, just not (laughs) the drugs. (laughs) So Danny eventually meets a woman named Debbie at Riff and the two hit it off and start going to do pars after meetings. Unlike his first wife, Debbie's parents loved him. The dad worked for Hanna-Barbera, the animation company, and Debbie was like an aspiring animator. She loved Danny and the parents loved him. They really encouraged them to get married. They even paid for their big fancy wedding in Burbank and bought them a house once they were newlyweds. So pretty sweet deal. But Danny admits marriage to him was basically a piece of paper to keep Debbie happy. He was raised under the philosophy that women were to be objectified and that you always had one in the sheets, your wife, and one on the streets. 
Danny had a lot on the streets. Oh, He had a lot of side pieces going on. And he claims that being married made him even more in demand. He's pretty open about the fact that he's a shitty husband uh, throughout this book. And it doesn't, it takes a long time for him to kind of get through that. Now, he eventually gets a job selling tools for another ex-con named Sam, who was a real mentor to him. He had um, zero success initially selling when he put on the suit and did the whole salesman act. So he has an idea. He dresses in a white tee, jeans, cuffed, uh, like black leather jacket, boots, and starts pulling up to people selling tools out of his car. He even goes into back alleys to meet the managers, acting like he's selling stolen goods on the cheap. And he makes a killing this way. Wow. Like they, they kind of ignore him when they think it's just a salesman. But when they think they're getting a deal, they're all interested. Now, he does start to hang out with Uncle Gilbert more. Um, but he gets an important lesson after be- beating the shit out of a guy in a bar bathroom that he was attending with Uncle Gilbert. Not only does he level this guy, but when the guy's laying on the floor beaten, Danny pisses all over him before oh he God. leaves. Now, as they're walking out of the bar... His uncle says to him, hey, it's okay to beat the shit out of everyone, but pissing on him was just humiliating the guy. And that's the kind of thing that leads to lifelong enemies who will want to kill you one day. (laughs) Danny's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But as they're walking to the car, a car, a, a pop goes off and Danny thinks he's been shot. It turns out it was just a car backfiring, but Danny has to admit to his uncle that he just pissed his pants. His uncle says, that's karma. (laughs) Danny takes it as a sign, and from that moment on, he only kicks people's ass. He does not humiliate them further. this This is what they call progress, not perfection. Exactly. Now, I mean, his rage is still a problem. He still has all this pent-up rage, and this is not the period where people are going to therapy really yet. He's going to meetings, but that's about it. He is getting into it all the time, even over minor things like someone cutting him off. He's like a road rage guy. Sam, his boss at the tool selling gig, as I mentioned, is also an ex-con. And he kind of come becomes Danny's Mr. Miyagi. Like he has all this wisdom, like you see the waves crashing, like that kind of stuff. Like you can never stop the wave, like all of this stuff. And Danny like takes it in, I think because he's an ex-con. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's not, you know, I get it. He gets it. Um, he gets to the point finally where if someone cuts him off now, he does a Zen thing where he's like, wow, that man must be in a, in a hurry. <laughs> now he tells a poignant story in his book, once out of nowhere, Sam says to him, I love you, Dan. And Danny was like, what the fuck you want? And Sam is like, what the fuck you got? Danny says, you, you ain't got nothing but a motherfucking dick. And I already got one of those. He says, what the fuck is wrong with you, Dan? Every time you hear the word love, you think someone's going to get fucked, whether it comes from a broad or a used car salesman. You ain't got nothing but parole. And I already got that. I don't want your stinky ass. And then Danny says, but you have to admit my ass is nice. And that breaks the tension and they start (laughs) laughing. But he was making a joke to avoid the hard truth of what Sam was saying. He had never heard a man say, I love you to another man. And it took him years to be able to do that himself. He still had this sort of like idea of masculinity that obviously was ruining his fucking life. Even though he was sober now, it was still sort of interfering with his relationships. Well, and also intimacy that didn't involve sex. Yes. And that's how he treated women. Like he didn't know there was a next level. 
uh, with the woman. It was just, yeah. So the business, uh, the tool business kind of cools down and Danny and his friends start a lawn care business. He also starts working at something called NPP, the Narcotics Prevention Project. Initially, he is taken on to basically clear out the floor, four block radius surrounding the location because it's covered with drug dealers. So these people are leaving this trying to get clean and then they're being confronted with someone selling drugs immediately. But then they bring them on... Uh, to kind of assess patients and take them to detox. Like he's kind of the driver. He takes them in and then and takes them where they need to go. He's um, really making a positive impact in the lives of recovering addi- addicts. And that's very rewarding to him. But as I mentioned, he's still the world's worst husband. And he kind of uses his good work with addicts to justify how he treats other people shitty. Like it's like, well, I do this good so I can treat my wife like shit. Um, he even has two side pieces who are roommates and when he would go broke and needed money, they would go out and strip for, for money for him to give him money. So he had them sort of supporting him and his wife sometimes too. He must be good in bed. (laughs) That's my guess. Now he tells a story in the book about why he thinks he had some of these feelings towards women. Obviously, yes, he's raised knee-deep in, in toxic masculinity. All the men in his life were tough guys, uh, unemo- couldn't share their emotions and all of that stuff. But there was a more personal reason as well. When he was eight, he recalled his uncle David coming over, his mom sending him outside, and then going into the house for a very long time to talk while he was instructed to play outside. At some point, he mentions this to his dad weeks after the incident happened, that Uncle David had come over and his dad exploded in rage confronting his wife. She said Danny was lying. Danny was so scared about what his dad would would do, he finally just said he was lying to calm the situation down. Now, a year later, his mom made him his favorite food, which at the time was fried okra. While he was eating it, she said, why did you lie to your father about Uncle David that time? And his heart sunk because he knew she was mothering him and gaslighting him at the same time and just sort of manipulating him. And it just made him not trust people in general, but maybe particularly women. He said that at that after that moment, okra disgusted him when he saw it. Like It just became this kind of symbol of that moment. And this moment... I'm going to get back to this because it keeps coming up what happened here. Now, he does claim his initial impression of their bad marriage was to blame the mom. But later on, he does recognize his mother was basically an indentured servant. He had His dad had married her to become his mom, basically, and that was it. So both of them kind of resented Danny for the situation they were in. She was also trapped in the home because the dad didn't let her have a car. So all she did was stay home and cook and clean the house and take care of Danny. And she was just basically stuck in this home, living under the tyrannical rule of the dad. So she had this affair because it was like the only freedom that she had. Like It was like her only space for herself, I think. Uh, And that that was the way she was able to make this marriage work. Um, So it's definitely a fucked up situation. Now, the final nail in Danny's marriage to Debbie came when a friend of Debbie's newly in recovery stayed at their home and Danny fucked her one night. Oh, Jesus. The friend was racked with guilt and told Debbie to make amends. (laughs) No, see, 
<laughs> I'm going to say it, what you're going to say, because Danny says it. Yeah, well. He says, I guess she missed the part about only making amends if it won't injure the person you're making amends to or other people. Is that what you're going to say? That's what I was going to say. Yeah. So he never saw Debbie again. She leaves him and that's it. They don't see each other anymore. I mean, I don't know how much time sober at this point Danny has, like a year or two years or whatever. It's a few years. Okay. Yeah. So look. This is just a word to the wise, to non-alcoholics out there, people who don't have family members in recovery. Like, your loved one, when they get sober, they're not fixed overnight. Yes. They have a lot of emotional (laughs) issues that they're still working out. Because they're stunted. They are so stunted. And I'm saying this from my own personal experience as an alcoholic. Yeah. They are so stunted emotionally, spiritually, every way... It's not surprising hearing stories and from my own experience of doing weird shit in early sobriety. Yes. So although he has success helping others get clean, his uncle Gilbert is another story. One of his part-time jobs is basically helping Gilbert get out of trouble. Like He spends a lot of time helping his uncle Gilbert. He says one of the last times he helps uncle Gilbert uh, he gets called by a relative that Gilbert is in the backyard naked with some other chicks who are also naked and obviously they're all fucked up. He says, if you're in Beverly Hills naked in your backyard, you're sunbathing. But in Pacoima, you're fucking. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes there. It's a fucking scene. He, he offers to take Gilbert at that moment to rehab right away. He's like, I will drive you to rehab right now. Let me take you. Uh, he tells them, you're violating parole right now. If someone calls the cop and they come here and test you, you're you're on drugs, alcohol, you're back in jail. Like, I'm serious. The woman's like drunk and she's like, I'll go to rehab. <laughs> and he's kind of like, shut up, stay out of it. Now, the uncle goes inside because he's like, I want Kool-Aid. So he goes inside to get Kool-Aid. And of course, Danny's like, what the fuck? Like, why are you getting Kool-Aid now? Like, he comes back out with a tumbler of Kool-Aid in one hand and his balls are cupped in the other. <laughs> it's just a scene. He finally agrees to take the woman as well because Gilbert is like, I'm only going if she gets to go. So he takes them all to rehab. Unfortunately, Uncle Gilbert bails shortly after. The woman actually stays and gets clean, (laughs) ironically. Um, And he leaves and does a bunch of armed robberies and is back at Folsom. Gilbert. Gilbert. Okay. Yeah. So Danny basically becomes the father figure to Gilbert's son, who is also named Gilbert, who is now getting in trouble himself. He's about 12 at this time. Uh, He has a dad in prison who has been in prison most of his life. He has zero guidance. And Danny is like, he's on the Trejo path. Like this kid uh, is in trouble. He offers to take him from the mom because the mom is no longer able to control him. And his girlfriend at the time, a woman named Joanne, is happy to be a mother figure for the boy. And he comes and starts doing really well. He starts playing, um, I think it's called, what is it called? Like football? What? No, sorry. There's like a name what for it, it, like kid football. I can't remember. Pop Warner? Pop Warner. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. What is it called? Football? football? Sports ball? Just my, kidding. My, I hate sports my ball. My brother was in Pop Warner. Yeah, Pop Warner. <laughs> um, so he's kind of like, things might seem like they're turning around for him. He eventually, Danny eventually marries Joanne. 
But as I said, he is still not marriage material. Like he literally makes a joke to one of Joanne's friends on the wedding day about fucking in the limo with him. <gasps> like that's fucking the back of the limo. No. Yes. He realizes at this point that he loves the party of a wedding, <laughs> but not the honoring your vow stuff. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. He's like the chronic marrier. Like he keeps getting married. So even though things are going well with Gil Jr. staying with Danny, his mom misses him and wants him back. Shortly after returning him to his mom, he gets caught up in drugs and gangs again. And at the age of 17, he commits a gang killing that puts him in prison for the next 38 years of his life. (gasps) He is eventually in San Quentin with his dad, Gilbert Sr. Like they're in prison together. Oh, that's so sad. It's really sad. So Danny at this point, like he, he kind of, he still has his relationship with Gilbert Sr., obviously. And Gilbert is kind of sending him people from prison, like, hey, can you help my friend? And so he's getting, he has a, almost like a prison pipeline. When these guys get out, he's there to help them get sober or whatever they need. That's really great. Yes. So that works out well. Um, he is uh, single again. <laughs> Joanne and him uh, get divorced. Annie meets a patient named Diana. Now, he has the hots for her, but Danny's starting to grow a little bit because he's like, well, it's probably not ethical to date her while she's in treatment. No. <laughs> so she eventually, you know, whatever, graduates from rehab. I don't know what the word is. And they don't speak for a half year. He eventually hires her to help with some sort of bureaucratic job in the office. And then they start uh, dating at that point. Now, around this time, all hell breaks loose when the 30-year affair between his stepmom and Uncle David comes out. uh, And it literally rips the Trejo clan apart. So it was what happened. Uh, He wasn't lying. (laughs) The mom was lying. His parents split but the dad is basically useless on his own because he's been taking care of his whole fucking life. So, and the mom is kind of struggling as well because Uncle David is sent somewhere far away so he won't get killed. Uh, so she can't even be in a relationship with him. They eventually get back together and oh. just back in that toxic marriage, which I think was probably pretty common back then uh, to do. Now, the dad's trying to make amends with Danny at this point, and he invites Danny and Diana, Diana to have dinner. Uh, they end up staying over because I don't know it was late. I don't know why. And he said that he liked having Diana there. She was like armor protecting him from the anger and pain of being in the house again where he grew up. Now, the next morning, they're awake. They're, awake, they're having coffee in the kitchen. His mother uh, said she wanted to speak with Danny in private. In his mind, he says, maybe this is the moment. She's going to own up to all those years of deception. She's finally going to apologize to me for what uh, she did. Now, where do you think this is? Do you think she's going to apologize, Rachel? I don't think so. Uh, She takes him aside in the hallway and says, I don't like the kind of stuff you're doing with that woman in my house, and I won't stand for it in my home. Now... He said that they didn't do anything, but they were laughing in bed, talking and stuff like that. But he obviously didn't fuck her like in his parents' small house. Yeah. So, but beyond that, he was outraged at her having some morality about the situation, (laughs) considering what she had done in that house herself. So he said his decision to make peace with the situation instantly dissolved in that moment. He said he'd fallen for her shit too many times. Uh, and the day, especially that day she made the okra and gaslit him. And now she thought I was going to apologize. She brought her moral bullshit on me just for fucking laughing. So he's like 
outraged with her. Um, he basically sees red. Like he is, his rage is completely piqued by this. Um, all these years you spent bent over giving it to Uncle Dan- David <gasps> in the hallway, and you dare preach to me in my father's hallway about moral bullshit. Like it brought out the vicious animal in him. He says he didn't respond to her. Uh, he just walked silently to the kitchen, grabbed Diana and said, let's go, and basically didn't speak to her. He like refused to speak or see her after this moment. Wow. Now, in 1981, Danny experiences some real highs and lows. Diana, who he has an on-again, off-again relationship with at this point, finds out she's pregnant. He's 36 at the time, and even though he accepts that... She's having the baby, so he has no choice to accept that he's being a father. He struggles with the idea of it. Like, it freaks him out. Um, Like you said, these people are stunted. So even though he's 36, maybe mentally he's still, like, in his early 20s, emotionally, uh, too. Now, on one of their on nights, when they're having a good time together, Danny gets a call in the middle of the night from his mom, who he hasn't spoken to since the day he went off on her. His dad had been in a bad car accident and was in the ICU. He and Diana rushed to the hospital. His dad and a coworker had been drinking and gotten into the coworker's new Mustang and started street racing. The dad was driving and lost control and crashed into a tree, splitting the car into two. <gasps> In Danny's opinion, his reckless ways were the inevitable end to the path he had been on since finding about his wife's affair. Now, complicating matters was Danny's dad had diabetes, and the doctors were talking about the possibility that they would have to amputate limbs because they just weren't like healing properly or something. According to Danny in the book, the night they told me they were going to amputate his limbs, I went into the parking lot and screamed at God. I said, God, you motherfucker, either you work one of your miracles and make my dad whole or you take him, take him right now because my dad ain't going to want to live without an arm and a leg. Now, you know, obviously that's a big moment for Danny because he has this special relationship with God. He said that police officers saw him and were like, what are you doing? And he's like, what the fuck do you want? Like, so he's screaming at the cops and he thinks God protected him because they didn't like go after him. They just kind of drove away and left him to be uh, whatever he was feeling and his feelings. Um, the next morning at 6 a.m., his mother called to say his father had passed away. Aww. And Danny felt that God had listened to him, basically. Uh, so, Yeah. Uh, Danny's dad's funeral, he is trimming a tree for her in the front yard. His guests are coming over. She comes out yelling at him and uh, for trimming her tree like she didn't want it done. She's just going off on him. He said that he was like so humiliated. I know that feeling too when you don't know why someone's yelling at you and you're not even doing anything wrong. He actually says to her, that branch was dead, mommy, because he like reverted to like a five-year-old child in that moment mm. when she was so angry at him. When she goes back inside, Gilbert looked at him and he said, "I." He knew Danny was close to killing her with a tree trimmer, but was like containing his rage in that moment. So Gilbert Senior's out of prison. No, yes, he's out again. Yeah. He goes back and forth a lot. He's okay. out again. He told Danny to leave at that moment. He's like, "You need to get out of here because your rage is like intense." Uh, and then he added, but if you do end up killing her, I'll help you bury the body. <laughs> Jesus. Danny once again refuses to see her after this moment, especially because he found out that she was seeing Uncle David again. Um, but there is, like I said, this was a mixed year for him because this is also the year his son Danny is born 
And obviously, um, that's a great moment for him. He does say something funny. He's like, I feel like an asshole admitting this, but it would have been a perfect moment if Diana wasn't there. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) Yes. I was like, Danny. He's like, I know I have to admit this though. It was was like the most great, the most beautiful moment of my life. If only my fucking Diana wasn't there. The mother of my child. And it's like, yeah, I kind of get that petty feeling, but Danny, come on. (laughs) It's like, you know, you've changed for the better when you can admit that shit like in the past. Anyway, I'll take a break here and we'll get back to more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So... Now, around this time, I mentioned Uncle Gil is out of prison. He is sober at this point. So he does kind of clean up his act, but it's not long before he goes off the rails again and is back in prison. Diana also gets back on drugs at this time. uh, And that Danny comes and finds basically like needles on the table and her um, drug dealer is there, like passed out. So that's what he walks into because they've kind of split up at this point. And their son is young. Yeah, their son's basically the same age he was when his dad did the same thing to him, taking him from his mother. I mean, for a much smaller incident, this is definitely a bigger deal. So he takes Danny away from her and forbids her to come near his son. She eventually ends up in prison for the, her drug. What I don't, I don't know what exactly she, she does, but it's drug related. So he luckily has an old friend, an older woman named Nanny, who helps him take care of Danny while he figures it out because he's single at this time as well. Now, in 1985, uh, Danny is working at the Western Pacific Medical Corp. This is um, 
it's an it's a corporation that establishes and operates sober living houses in the valley. He meets a good-looking tattooed kid during a meeting in one of these houses who explains that he works as a film extra and gets $50 a day to stand there. Danny is like, that sounds good because he's not earning a lot of money working in these sober living facility uh, in that that world. Uh, He becomes a film extra just to kind of earn easy money and sort of supplement his income. He also likes it because he meets a lot of people who need to get sober in the film industry. So he's able to kind of hand his card out on the set and meet people who need help. So it's kind of a double, um, double, not edge sword, but double double win. Yeah. So he eventually gets an agent and he starts uh, getting more extra work. Late one night, he receives a call from a teenage patient patient that he had been working with asking for his assistance dealing with his cocaine problems while he was working on the set of Runaway Train. While there, Danny is offered a job as an extra in the film's prison scenes after he runs into a man named Edward Bunker, who is a former convict and at the time a crime author who was writing the screenplay for the film. He actually recognized Trejo because they had done time together at San Quentin. He also remembers that Danny is a great boxer. Uh, He helps Danny get a role securing, I'm sorry, he helps get him um, a job working as Eric Roberts' personal trainer and boxing advisor on the film. He also convinces the director, Andre Konchalovsky, to offer Danny a small acting role saying, hey, his personal experience of incarceration will be really add some authenticity to these prison scenes. So this is basically his first acting role where he's not an extra. And this is all just because he showed up to help this kid. Yes. All of this is just random luck. So, And this guy who happened to know him and hooked hooked him up, basically. So once again, according to Danny, movies are saving his life like much like they did in Solitary. And he has a new addiction, acting. He loves loves working in movies. Now, he's getting, you know, like 300 to 350 per day. He, he, when he gets his first paycheck, he thought it was a mistake because he couldn't believe how much money he was getting uh, for something that was so fun and easy to do. Um, It was the biggest paycheck of his life, and he literally burst into tears when he got it. He also told a funny story about um, how he didn't know anything about how the stuff worked, like the union rules and all of that kind of stuff. And he had heard about meal penalties. Now, obviously, that's something you get paid for overtime and meal penalties if they don't feed you. Like, there's a lot of rules where you get extra money. Um, so the meal penalty is like if you haven't been fed in six hours, you get this penalty fee added to your paycheck. He's there one time making sandwiches for himself, and he's making extra to take home for his kid. Uh, a PA tells him he was entering meal penalty, and he immediately immediately was freaking out because he thought he got busted stealing sandwiches <laughs> for, for taking too much food. So he's like, I'll put some back. I'll put some back. And she's like, no, I don't give a fuck. You can take as many sandwiches as you want. Uh, you're getting extra money because we haven't officially fed you. Like right. craft services doesn't count. So he's like, shit, the world of movies is fucking awesome. <laughs> like He like, I love it here. Now, following his acting debut, obviously he gets cast in a bunch of other things, small roles here and there, and they're always pretty much uh, prisoner type stuff. People ask him later, was he um, upset about always being typecast as that thing? And he said, 
I didn't know at the time I was being stereotyped. I just knew I was working. His next film is big film is called Penitentiary 3. Uh, this is his first build role. He actually meets Anthony Gambino of the Gambino crime film family working here because they were sort of bankrolling this movie. He was paid $120 uh, in cash a day, but the project was constantly in overtime. So he said they were stacked with cash. On a good month, Trejo was taking home like $700 a week. Um, just from being an extra alone. Wow. This is like the late 80s. People assumed he was wealthier after he did a few television appearances. And he said that like this worked to his advantage as a drug counselor because clients would recognize him from his acting. And it gave... Um, he wasn't earning that much money, but it, they were they just assumed it so that it sort of was even more impactful for them. They're like, wow, this rich actor is working with us. But he was as broke as them pretty much still, like even though he was earning a little more. Now things are looking up in his personal life as well. He meets a woman named Maeve at a meeting. <laughs> uh, so as his life though trajectory is sort of going in a positive direction, the opposite is true for Uncle Gilbert. It's just getting worse and worse for him. And Danny almost considers watching his uncle get deeper into drug addiction and crime. It's like his alternate ter- timeline. Like that could have been me if I didn't switch and look where I am now. But obviously it's still very scary and, ob- and humbling for him to see. Danny recalls the last night he saw Uncle Gilbert. He said Gilbert came in with pizza and fried zucchini sticks, which were covered in grass. He apologized and ate it anyway. Gilbert was emotional. He told me how proud he was of me, how sorry he was for starting me on drugs and crime. I said, fuck that, Gilbert. If you hadn't, I'd be at home somewhere watching the news. You made me who I am. My experiences made me who I am. There's nothing I would change. So... He's about to go on some motorcycle ride or something. Um, He leaves. He says, I love you, Danny, and I love you too, Holmes. Uh, That's what they say to each other. So he does finally say, I love you to another man, and that's like a powerful moment for him. He leaves, uh, and that's the last time Danny sees him. His cousin Sal finds Gilbert days later in his apartment. He had OD'd. Gilbert Gilbert had 17 grand in cash and eight ounces of cocaine and heroin on his person, and there were guns everywhere. So Danny tells Sal to get rid of all that stuff before calling the paramedics because he didn't want Gilbert's life to be defined by that stuff uh, in the end. Um, So he's really lost by this. Like Gilbert... Uh, even though he's in prison most of Danny's adult life, was the defining relationship of Danny's life, according to him. And now he's left alone to sort of carry on without him. In 1987, Maeve gets pregnant, right when Danny is about to go off to film a movie called Guns. Now, Guns starred Eric Estrada, who (laughs) you might remember from the hit TV show Chips. He played Paunch. So I don't know. I Danny laughs a lot about how what shitty movies he's in at this point, but it's like, who cares? Yeah. Like you're making movies. It's fucking fun as hell. For sure. Now, according to Danny, like from the minute he gets on like in their preliminary meetings and like table reads and stuff like that. Eric is very distant and he, he finds Eric a little weird and competitive when people recognize Danny and he didn't get it. Uh, he said, you know, 
Ponch what had been a while ago and no one really gave a shit about Ponch anymore. And Danny was sort of this up and coming like cool uh, celebrity or like Mexican American celebrity. So he said it was a good reminder to always have a higher purpose than Hollywood. Now at some point they're flying to Hawaii to um, film some stuff. So Danny uh, gets on the thing. They say, Hey, sorry, you guys have to fly coach. Eric and Danny, Danny kind of agrees because Eric's like, oh, cool, that's fine, whatever. And Danny's like, oh, yeah, sure, of course. But once they're on the plane, Eric and his girlfriend um, get ta- whisper something to the stewardess and they get taken up to first class. <gasps> and he leaves Danny back in coach. So at that point, Danny's like, well, it's fine if Eric, we were all doing coach, but what the fuck is this bullshit? So he's like fuming about this. Uh, but of course, Danny always has these moments that come in and kind of show him the way he eavesdrops and hears an older couple celebrating their 50th anniversary together. And the man finally got to take her to Hawaii and it was like her lifelong dream. So it kind of makes him realize what a piece of shit he's being complaining about not being in first class. He gives them his row, which is a roomier row so they can enjoy it. And he says, God always has a way of sending me messages to check my ego and will. Now, he also remembers a quote from his friend um, who helped him out on Runaway Train. He said, the whole world can think you're a movie star, but you can't. <laughs> that's a good it's advice. True. It's yeah. true. And that's true for a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. Like people can think you're hot or like whatever positive. It's like, you don't need to be the one. Let everyone else think it. Like right. once you start believing your bullshit, it's done. Well, I mean, if you're believing your bullshit to the point where you're treating other people like they're less than you. Absolutely. Yeah. So in 1988, he has his son, also named Gilbert, and 27 months later, he has daughter Danielle. I thought he had a cute little story when Danielle is born. Now, Danielle is really instrumental in helping Danny change his sexist ways, obviously. A lot of men are like, once I had a daughter, (laughs) right? And it's annoying because they should treat women with respect (laughs) already. But you know what? I'll take it. Like, if that's what it takes, may every man have a daughter. So the doctor hands him Danielle, and the first thing he says to her is, no one will ever hurt you. After that, the doctor asks him if he wants to cut the umbilical cord, and Danny's like, uh, I just said that nobody would ever hurt her. He says, don't don't worry, Mr. Trejo, she won't feel it. He doesn't want to do it. So Maeve steps in, the doctor makes the cut, and Danielle cries, probably just because she's a baby. He says, I told you not to hurt her, Holmes. He said the doctor (laughs) smiled. Because he doesn't think that anyone had ever called the doctor Holmes before. (laughs) So the 90s are off to a good start. He has two uh, cute babies. In 1991, he meets with Edward James Olmos to um, talk about starring in the movie American Me, which will be Olmos' directorial debut. Trejo is unimpressed by the script, however. Uh, He knew a lot of the people this is a script um this is a movie about the mexican mafia in la uh like that goes way back to the zoot suit riots and danny um knows a lot of the guys depicted in this movie and he's like this stuff is inaccurate like uh and he has this meeting with almost he also is not really impressed with almost uh he thinks that he kind of doesn't see him as a peer but sort of as a novelty addition to the cast like to have some realism he also starts hearing rumors 
um, that the Mexican mafia is has seen the script somehow and they're not uh, happy with all of these liberties that are being taken. In 2021, Trejo states that he still thinks almost has yet to accept him as a serious actor. Now, almost tells Danny that he shouldn't worry about these liberty, liberties that are being taken because he has gotten the approval from the Don of the Mexican Mafia, an Irish guy named Joe Pegley Morgan. <laughs> I have no idea. Don't even. I can't. You can write in and tell me why. Uh, but <laughs> before Trejo has the chance to attend the second meeting with Almost, he gets a call from Joe Pegleg Morgan. He, he knew back in San Quentin. He tells uh, Trejo that he approves of him taking on the role in Blood In, Blood Out, another Mexican mafia movie in production, but not American Me. So both of these movies will be filming in the prisons where a lot of these guys are locked up. And Danny does say to Joe Morgan, like, hey, I just want to make sure the cast and crew aren't going to face any repercussions from working on American Me. And Joe kind of agrees that they'll be fine. He gets it. They're just people looking for a paycheck. They don't get all the details of what's going on. Now, uh, fucked up shit starts happening on set, though, while they're filming in these prisons, especially at Folsom. It's rumored that at least eight people will die from being associated with American Me. Uh, Most of them are ex-gang members. And there is one woman who was gunned down. She was a consultant on the film, like an expert in these gangs. Uh, So she gets killed. No one can prove that there is a connection, but it is pretty weird. Uh, Of his experiences of blood in, blood out, Trejo recalls feeling very uncomfortable. Um, He obviously still was a little insecure as an actor, but it really was more about being in production at San Quentin. He was having flashbacks about his time there that was 25 years earlier at this point, but it still was affecting him. He had to film scenes in his former cell and anything that was wrong with him was being exasperated by all of this uh, extra stress. Unlike with Almost, the director of um, Blood In, Blood Out, Taylor Hackford, listened to Danny as far as things to do to make peace with the Mexican gang members they were filming with. Things like not using red and blue colors and just having a neutral color representing all Chicanos, stuff like that really eased the tensions. Now, there were some rough patches during the shoot, but ultimately it went pretty smoothly. Best of all, Danny, at the end of this shoot, felt like more than just an inmate brought in to add authentic flavor. He felt like a peer and was treated like a peer by everyone on set, and that really boosted his confidence. He also was able to deepen his connection to the inmate community, including meeting a young man named Mario, who will come back later in our story and plays a pretty pivotal role for Danny uh, at at a trying time in his life. Now, though his previous works were bringing him a lot of opportunities, he really credits Blood In, Blood Out as having brought him sort of a more worldwide level of fame. Like he really was, this was a big deal for his career. He gets back from filming this and his wife Maeve almost immediately noticed like him not really clinging to this beaver cleaver lifestyle she's kind of set up for them with the two kids. They have a pool, they're in a house, it's like happy family time. Danny's not feeling it. She says that working in the prison has triggered his PTSD. Her mom is a therapist, so she kind of knows that world a bit. He, of course, doesn't think he has PTSD. He says to her, I'm not the one who has been put through shit. Like, I'm the one who put people through shit. All the people I robbed and hurt are the ones who deserve sympathy. Maeve says guilt without self-awareness makes everything worse. And that sort of connects with Danny. 
In his book, he says, the world of sobriety requires inward circumspection. I'd been in that world for so long and I felt ashamed of who I'd been and what I'd done, but I never really had given much thought to the insane masculinity I'd grown up in and how that had shaped me. I just figured if I stayed sober and helped other people get sober, I was doing everything I needed to do. I didn't look at the little boy who was me and what happened to him and how all of that informed who I became as a man. I thought I was just another dude with really bad nightmares. So he is slowly waking up to things. It takes him a while. And that's, I think that's, uh, I like that someone keeps working on it though. Well, you're It's hard. To. Yeah. yeah. So Danny starts noticing gang activity in Venice and he sends his oldest son, Danny, to live with his mom, Diana, who is now out of prison and living with her parents in Lompoc, which is north of Santa Barbara, a, a small little quaint town up there. They have good schools and it's safer for him to grow up. Uh, he and his wife were like, well, we have time to get out of Venice because their kids are still young. And this is definitely a moment of growth for Danny because he gives his son what was not afforded to him as a young boy and Gilbert, young Gilbert. Uh, he basically lets his wife win or his ex-wife win, which was hard for him. For, for the love of his son. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, yeah, he did the right thing. Next up, because he's still Patty and he admits it. <laughs> so next up, he works on two of his his biggest star-filled films, Con Air and Heat. Trejo describes 1997's Con Air as a macho fest from the start, and the cast were often pulling pranks on one another. I'm sure it was a rowdy set. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) There's no way. He describes Nicolas Cage as being cool as hell, John Cusack as a kickboxing badass, and he meets many of the people who will become lifelong friends on the set, John Malkovich, Ving Rhames, Steve Buscemi, and Dave Chappelle. Next up, he does Heat. He is hired to be an armed robbery consultant on the movie. Initially, he had worked with Michael Mann on a television miniseries called Drug Wars, The Camarina Story, a few years prior. He tells a funny story about working with an actor on that set, actor Treat Williams. He said that after... Um, Michael Mann had told him to go hard on one take with Treat Williams. He did, and everyone was like, whoa, like after it was over. Michael knocks on his door, and Danny thinks he's about to be fired for going too hard. Instead, he says, Danny, that was an Emmy-worthy performance. I thought, if scaring people is Emmy-worthy, I should have a ton of them. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Danny um, is spotted by Michael Mann on the set. Mann initially mistakes Trejo for his uncle Gilbert. He had worked with Gilbert on a um, film called The Jericho Mile uh, that filmed at Folsom in the late 70s. Wow. So production required the cooperation of inmates on this film, and Gilbert was one of the shot callers. Like He helped navigate that for Michael Mann. So he told Danny at that point, oh, I have a part for you. Heat goes through a bunch of script revisions at this point, and Trejo reads for the part. He ultimately gets this role, and when he does, the character whose name is initially uh, Vince is renamed Trejo to honor Gilbert, and wow. that's Man's decision. And he's like, "Is that okay?" And Man Trejo's like, "Yes, that that's amazing." Like, so they film. This is a long shoot. This is a big role for Danny. He's like up there with fucking De Niro, Pacino. <laughs> like, it's every good actor at that time is in this movie. And he's in the big, he's in the lead gang. Like, so he's grateful. He learns so much. He's working with De Niro, Kilmer, John Voight. Um, and he learns about how they saved 
their energy for the performance when it mattered. Like he learns a lot of stuff on this set. He is mentored by Robert De Niro. He really takes him under his wing and they have a bunch of scenes together and including like his infamous death scene. He says that he was having trouble with it and De Niro gives him the advice. Um, I think here's what I think your state of mind is. I think you're already dead and you're just holding out long enough to ask me to kill you. And that angle really worked for Danny um, because it's a it's a really powerful scene and Danny's really good in it. It's sad as hell. Um, so heat wraps. Danny gives Man a photo of Gil from prison and Man still has that photo hanging in his office to this day. Wow. So I thought that was a cool uh, connection, like a wild connection. So unfortunately, Danny's relationship with Maeve, who he considers the love of his life, ends in the late 90s. He said they were earth signs, dirt and water, and together they made mud. Now, I don't know if that's astrologically sound. (laughs) Wait, wait, what's Danny's sign? I don't remember. I think he's earth. Is earth signs dirt and water? No, because no, that's water signs. Wait, was she a water sign and he was an I earth? guess he's an earth sign and she's a water sign. I think he doesn't... I don't think he knows astrology. I don't really either. We're going to have to look this up later. So, but whatever it was, they didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> I like that they made mud. So maybe he, maybe he was dirt. Maybe he's earth and she's water. Anyway, a few months later, Maeve gets married to get back at Danny because he shows up at some point with a woman's name tattooed on his chest, (gasps) some woman he just fucked, uh, and she gets married. He says to get back at her, but maybe she just got married. (laughs) Then he gets married to get back at her. Oh, my God. All of this is very mature. Like, he's old now. Yeah. He's, like, in his 50s still doing this shit, and it's another woman named Debbie. So he films the movie Reindeer Games. Uh, During that film filming, he gets diagnosed with hepatitis C. So he's he has he's suffering from hepatitis C while he films that as well as while he films the movie Spy Kids in 2000. Now that's his debut as the fictional character Isidore Machete Cortez. He had already made Desperado and From Dust Till Dawn with um, director Robert Rodriguez. Those are from 95 and 96. Um, so he's working with these guys again, Antonio Banderas, Cheech Marin's in it. So it was like a little uh, family reunion when they did Spy, Spy Kids. This will also provide Danny with like worldwide wide recognition and like an instantly recognizable star amongst children around the globe. It's just like a new level for him. Next up after this, he also does Bubble Boy in 2001. That oh, starred uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Gyllenhaal. Yeah. So... During that movie, his illness has really progressed. He's losing a lot of weight. He obviously, he's like, my past drug use caught up with him. That's why he's suffering from this. He was pale and weak throughout the production and really preoccupied with keeping his diagnosis a secret because he was worried it would affect his career in Hollywood if he let people know he had Hep C. So he is pretty much out of it during this. He's struggling to remember lines because he's on a lot of prescription medication to treat it. By the time Spy Kids premieres in 2002, he has fully recovered from Hep C. His family life was shit, however. His relationship with Debbie was on the rocks, and his son Gilbert is now um, on drugs. He quickly moves from pot to cocaine, and Danny right away sends him to a lockdown rehab in Utah. 
and that's where Gilbert sort of tries to clean up. But his struggle with addiction continues after he gets out. He eventually gets on heroin, and he really struggles for a while with, with this addiction. Danny really starts to struggle with panic attacks. He's kind of reached a standstill in his Hollywood career, and like all the shit that's going down with his son and the end of his other marriage, it's whatever emotional things he has not dealt with are really starting to pile up on him at this point. He realizes at some point he just has 30K in the bank and in the book, he's like, yeah, I know that's a lot for some people, but I had earned a lot of money and I was like down to like the bare end. He's like living in a hotel. He's fucking around, sleeping with a lot of women. Uh, At some point he isn't on rock bottom yet, but he takes a lot of his savings out of the bank and goes down to Skid Row and just starts handing it out. He's like giving it to people, trying to help them. I guess in this last ditch effort to kind of like get back on track, helping people. Um, He is offered a room in a home with his friend Max and the guy Mario, who I mentioned he had met in person. This guy really comes in at this point and takes him in and helps him get back on his feet. He says it was the first night he gets a good night's sleep in a very long time. Danny kind of realizes at this point, not dealing with things was not the long-term solution. And part of his healing process begins when he finally decides that he's going to forgive his mom for the affair she had with his uncle David. He starts showing up more and more at her house, which he describes as like, slowly evolving. Like she takes the plastic off her furniture. She was like one of those women who had the plastic on the couch and it starts becoming a place of warmth and love. Danny's kids also start visiting her and she kind of, it's like they never say anything, but he has just started having this relationship with her without ever bringing up everything that happened. Um, he says that, um, he talks about forgiveness, uh, that I thought was really, uh, poignant. He said that um, he had forgave her. Not I forgive her, but I'm still angry about her seeing David. I just flat out forgave her. She was doing what she felt needed to do to survive with whatever she was dealing with the same way I have in my life. The magic of forgiveness is so profound and it starts with us forgiving ourselves. There were so many things in my life that I'd done because in the moment it felt like the only way to survive. I thought about the Lord's Prayer, which I've said every day since Soledad. When it came to my mom, it really hit home, especially the part where we ask God to forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. I realized I couldn't ask God to take the heat off of me and love and absolve me if I didn't allow that for everyone else as well, especially my mom. So that was really a big moment for him, and it really helps him, I think, move past this period. He gets cast almost immediately in a movie called Pool Boy. So he'd really, these things always sort of pay off for Danny in a remarkable way. And things are back on track. Even his kids, Gilbert and Danielle, who had also got hooked on drugs, sort of start appearing to do better. Danielle especially just gets clean and sober. And uh, Gilbert is on the right path now. Danny is then cast in, um, I'm sorry, when he was cast in Desperado, by the way, uh, he found out that Robert Rodriguez was his um, relative. They didn't know they were related. Oh, wow. He had, I mean, I think in the last episode I mentioned he goes to Texas a lot when he's a kid. A few times they have a lot of family there. At some point he's on the set of Desperado and he sees one of his like Texas uncles on the set and he's like, 
get the fuck off here. You're embarrassing me. <laughs> not realizing that it was also Robert Riga, Rodriguez's uncle or relative. I'm not quite sure what. They might be like second cousins or something like that. Wow. So that guy was there for Robert and Danny was just like, get. I thought his family was embarrassing <laughs> on the set. Uh, so they didn't even find out until they were working together. But that meeting with Robert, in addition to finding out he was family, was very like instrumental in his life. Robert's first meeting with him, he said, you remind me of the bad kids in my high school. And Danny said, I am the bad kids from your high school. <laughs> Robert looked at me, handed me a knife and told me to get good with it. After I left, um, my wife asked me how it went. And I said, he gave me a, a knife, so I think it went well. <laughs> and that really uh, changed his life uh, he didn't know it how at the moment, but eventually it does come back big. Now, I once they were starting to work on this movie, Desperado, Rodriguez started talking to Danny about his fantasy of presenting a character that was kind of a Chicano superhero. During From Dust to Dawn, they actually found out um, they were related, as I mentioned, and Rodriguez um, finally introduced the character of Machete in Spy Kids. When Rodriguez filmed the movie Grindhouse with Quentin Tarantino, they needed to come up with like fake movie trailers for this uh, film. And one of the trailers they did was for a movie called Machete. And yeah, Machete was introduced in Spy Kids and Grindhouse. Oh, yes. Machete is like the... Um, the character. Yeah, the character. His name... Yeah. Okay. Did you ever see Spy Kids? I was too old when it came out. No, I didn't see it. What? <laughs> That's yeah, amazing. That char- He's like the um, Q, like the James Bond, like the weapons expert or like the whatever. I just had no idea that that was the first time that character yes. was... That's amazing. So their whole goal is to always get this character in. So he's slowly trying to get money to finance a major film for it. So the next thing, like I said, it was in Grindhouse. They did like a little trailer in that movie about a movie called Machete. And they eventually get the money to do this movie. In 2010, their dream becomes reality. Machete is finally made. And Trejo, he has like a great moment. He's finally number one on the call sheet. Like that was like a big deal for him. Michelle Rodriguez is in the movie and he at some point is saying to her, like, thank you so much for doing this movie. I love your work. And what is it? Girl fight or yeah. yeah. Like, uh, he's like being so grateful that she's doing the movie. He's like, she said to him, are you kidding me? You're the number one Mexican in the world. (laughs) And he's like, Whoa. (laughs) Um, so little did anyone know that while he is filming this movie though, he gets diagnosed with liver cancer. (gasps) So the whole time he's doing this, he's being treated with chemotherapy, the minute he finishes chemo, he's off to film a movie called Badass. But the chemo, uh, you know, the the struggles with dealing with the disease and this work, you know, working nonstop at this point is very grueling. One night he finally breaks down questioning God, why he had abandoned him. Classic moment, I think, when people are feeling fucking low. Uh, just when he starts to feel sorry for himself, once again, he has one of those moments that turn things around for him. He sees a commercial for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Uh, this is a very well-known cancer 
Children's Cancer Hospital. So he's looking at the TV, seeing these little kids with cancer, and he's like, you fucking punk. (laughs) You've had this great life, and there are little children who have stuff. They're going through chemo, and they haven't even had a chance to live yet. You've had a great life, and they fight and don't feel sorry for themselves. So he's like, message received. Like, And he immediately goes to the Children's Hospital in LA with tons of toys and starts like donating to the Children's Hospital and visiting them. Now... He also amazes his doctor because his tumor basically shrinks and disappears and he becomes cancer free. This is also around the time he's on Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. So that was a big deal. He really writes um, a lot of funny shit about Sons of Anarchy. Like he was really excited to be on that show. Really? Which I thought was really cute um, because it's a TV show. So it's like, I always like when movie stars are like, hell yeah, like Sons of Anarchy. Like... Uh, it's a good show, Danny. He was on Breaking Bad too, you know? Yeah. Uh, so at this time, around this time, Danny starts filming Muppets Most Wanted, which is like insane. Now, this story is so dark, but funny. And it's like a perfect story for me. So I had to include it. He's on the set of this Muppets Most Wanted when he gets the news that his mom has died of a stroke. <gasps> Obviously, this is devastating, but it's a big budget movie. He cannot just leave. He has to finish filming this. They're in the middle of a huge production number. I've never seen this movie, but he said his big number is um, being uh, recorded. He's singing and dancing, which he's <gasps> never done before. I, mean, I was like, I need to see this, I need movie. To see this movie. It's <laughs> like him and Tina Fey are doing this big production prison number <laughs> oh in a Muppet movie. Uh, he's singing this song called In the Big House, You'll Never Be Alone. At some point, he picks up Kermit, slams him on the table. He's singing and dancing through this number. And he said, you have to fully commit to the hilarious goofiness of it. Meanwhile, I'm dying inside (laughs) because my mom just died and I can't be there with my family. Now, right before he started filming this scene, Um, In the dining hall, the guy, the puppeteer named Steve Whitmire, who um, plays Kermit or or works Kermit, comes up to him. Now, Danny says that when you're working with Muppets, they're instructed to always stay in character, the the puppeteers. So the guy playing Kermit comes up to him with Kermit and says, I'm so sorry. um, I'm so sorry your mommy died, Danny. No. Yes. I could barely say it. So Danny says that he's like, he's so sincere and Kermit was sincere. So Dan and Kermit scrunched up his little face (laughs) and the puppet showed so emotion. It cut through all the layers of the hurt I was holding on to. Even though the assistant director was just about to call roll on a take, I bolted off the set and ran to the bathroom. As soon as the door closed, I burst into tears. I hadn't felt that much emotion since my uncle Gilbert died. Ray Liotta followed me in and waited with me until I got my shit together. Here we were, two guys who had played the hardest motherfuckers in movies, like weeping and holding each other. Over Kermit. And the Kermit. Like, isn't that hilariously dark? Like, my God. That's so sweet. Sweet, it's so sweet, but I can imagine losing it at that moment when Kermit the Frog comforts me. It's like the whole thing is just like, holy shit, like this needs to be in a movie. Like, I don't know why that's so relatable. Like, you know, when you're just everything is so fucked up and so dark and like you're you've been holding it together for so long. But then like 
the smallest thing. The smallest, dumbest thing just fucking breaks I just can't even, like, <laughs> especially Kermit, like, because that's, like, all, all of our childhoods. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, so he's, like, a big deal now, yeah. Danny. He starts getting national commercial campaigns for El Paso and Snickers. He tells... Uh, he's like a whole chapter on working for El Paso because they filmed the commercials in Mexico. And he's like, holy shit, like he's a huge star in Mexico. The world is literally his oyster at this point. In 2015, he suffers a massive subdural hemorrhage. Uh, he's in rehab, like a physical therapy rehab to recover from the effects of that. When he gets out, he is on the set of Badass 3. And this is when producer um, from badass this guy uh hands him a business plan to start trejo's tacos oh they had talked about opening a restaurant on badass three and this guy loved it so much he created a business plan and presents it to danny on the third installment uh adding to the sweetness of the deal for danny is that it was his lifelong dream the lifelong dream of his mother uh to open a restaurant so it has that he kind of is like i did this for her like too like uh, it's something she always wanted. He's also able to help his cousin Gilbert, who had been in prison since he was 17, to get out on parole at the age of 55. Gil- Gilbert Jr. Yeah. So both of his kids are finally off dr- drugs, including Gilbert, his son. And he makes a film with his son Gilbert that is truly a cathartic experience for both of them. It's called um, From a Son. I think Gilbert wrote the film and possibly directed Yeah, directed it. It's about a man searching for his son who is dealing with an addiction. So it's very uh, autobiographical. Uh, one night during filming, they get into a huge fight. At some point, uh, Gilbert says to him, you can say you're different from the men you were raised by, but their influence stayed with you. Danny says he was so angry he called Donald Logue and yelled, Gilbert, what kind of environment did you say I was raised in? And Gilbert yells, toxic masculinity. And Danny says, Donald, what the hell is toxic masculinity? Because it's what Gilbert says I was raised in. Donald said that there is kind of a misguided masculinity that poisons men and fucks up their relationship. (laughs) Now, Danny says, I was a bad man on the hardest prison yards, but the most terrifying thing I ever did was face my own emotions. I'd been taught to harden my soul against all those feelings, and I'd been afraid if I opened the door, it might never close. Now the door was open, and it was painful and and scary and uplifting and right. Danny... As I mentioned, I thought I think it's cool. He really prides himself on still continuing to grow well into his 70s now. In 2021, he competed on season five of The Masked Singer as Raccoon. Did you know this? No. Okay, I've never wanted to watch this show until now. He mentions in an interview that he couldn't stop laughing after the panel had thought Raccoon was portrayed by Danny DeVito. I guess they guessed. Did they guess who the celebrity is? I think so. Uh, that's wild to me. I like that he just starts doing all these rando things. <laughs> yeah. um, in 2020, January 31st is declared Danny Trejo Day. Maybe that's his birthday. In L.A.? Uh, yeah, L.A., that is officially Danny Trejo Day. Oh. Um, so that's an unbelievable honor for, honor for a man who really considers his hometown to be his own version of Oz. Like He finds this town magical, and it's a place where his dreams came true. Uh, at the end of the book, he is reflecting on his life on the eve of his 76th birthday. He says that he asked God at that point, God, how am I doing? And God answered, great, Danny. You're almost out of hell. Keep it up. I smiled to myself and I thanked him for my life. Oh, 
And that's the story of Danny Trejo. <laughs> that's so sweet. What a sweet uh, sentiment at the end of the book. Yeah. It was a nice chapter to read. Just him with his dogs and like his kids are doing well. That's good. Uh, Maeve is doing well. That's good. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he went through it. I mean, what an incredible story. I loved hearing all these details. Like I knew like the basic framework of his story. Right. But hearing all these like Hollywood stories this episode was so interesting. It's just... I mean, you can get the sense that he... And I think there was a quote, I forgot to include it, but it was kind of like he still can't believe what his life has become. Yeah. Like he's still so grateful and, and is just enjoying every second of it. Yeah. So I love that he's doing commercials and ad campaigns and like uh, for sure. I it's mean, it's like cool as hell. It's like why not? It's fucking fun. Like he, he's not too good for it. No, like, yeah. I mean, that's always like my favorite. I love, I love, I love actors who you can tell they're just like so happy to be there and enjoying it and having fun. Yes, it's fun to watch them. It's fun to watch him. I love that he is still admits to all his pettiness. Two. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because no one wants to be around a goody two shoes who's perfect all the time. He's like, no, I'm still fucking petty. I still have my moments. Please. Like, yeah. You think it's I'm like fucking. It's so refreshing to hear people admit to it, though. Like, yeah. even after the fact, if he's not that way still, it's still people have hard admitting they were ever awful. And I always find that the most interesting. Like, uh, yeah. For me. I mean, you. Wow. Uh, also, we've talked about Trejo a lot on this show over the past four years, just because we, when we used to be in Hollywood, we ate the tacos all the time. Yeah. Like, I feel like we still have a gift card or something. I think we have a gift card still. I, I, want, mean, I want them. I know. They're so good. They're really they're, good. Like Trejo's tacos are legitimately fucking delicious. He helped like he didn't he wasn't the head chef. They obviously had a chef, but he helped create like all those, you know, flavors. Like he was involved in it's that process. So good. They have this one taco that's a fried chicken taco. Oh god. And they have a fried chicken quesadilla. The quesadilla. Oh. And I gotta say, he also has a donut and coffee place in Hollywood. And I'm a donut connoisseur. Like I've eaten a lot of donuts in my life. It's probably my favorite dessert. Yeah. They're very good donuts. They're good donuts. And if you're vegan, he has vegan they, options. There's vegan options as well. And he has a donut cone you can get uh, oh. ice cream in. I've gotten it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a cone made out of donut and you get soft serve ice cream inside it's of it. It's so good. That is fucking genius. I ate it when I had to drive to the valley once. <laughs> I only had one hand, my fucking donut cone, making everyone jealous on the freeway. <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah. All right. We will post more pictures on our Instagram page and we will see you all Friday. Friday. Bye. Okay. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.